what a fantastic gift it is to have you here with us. Uh, my name is Rich. I serve as the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church. At the end of our service, I'll be downstairs with some of our pastors and leaders, and uh, we'd love to meet you before you head out of the building. It's an important tradition for us just to connect with folks before uh, you head out. And so if we've never met before, if this is your first time here or your first time in a long time, please make your way uh, to us and to me. I would love uh, to meet you. Uh, before I get into our message today, just a couple of, uh, I think, important things to say. The first thing is related to uh, the wonderful gift of our crowd size at the 11 o'clock service. Uh, it is so wonderful to see so many people gathered in this room. Uh, and so, um, as we have seen in the last few weeks, it's gotten pretty crowded in here. And we have seen as much as uh, 100 people in the shell room downstairs in the overflow. And so, this is um, a message for those of you in the shell room. Uh, for some of you in here, the 9 o'clock service has a little bit more room. I just want to <laughs> let you know, all right? And so, there's space in the 9 o'clock service, which is increasingly getting crowded as well. Uh, for at least about a hundred more people. And so if you want a little bit of, some of you, when I go to the movie theater, I don't want anybody there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and then some of you want a crowd. Some of you want a crowd. So if you're looking for a little bit more space, the nine o'clock service uh, is a great option. And then it's done at 10.15, 10.20. I mean, you got the rest of the day. Come on now. Um, and so give that some thoughts. The second thing I want to say before I get into my message is I want to make you aware that we have a deacon's ministry. And basically what this means is this. Our congregation is fairly large. And because of the size of our church, um, our pastoral team, which does uh, so much to care for people, we're just limited. And so in the past few years, we've added a deacon's team to come alongside the pastoral team for things like uh, prayer and hospital visits and home visits and just serving the very practical needs that arise in our congregation. And this is what I know about our church and every church on planet Earth. There's people who are experiencing significant need and pain and could use someone to pray with them and spend some time chatting with them or a hospital visit or a home visit. And so we want to make uh, you let you know that we want we have a team of people, our pastors and deacons that are available to serve you in this way. I want it to be said about our congregation that no matter how large we grow, that we can offer a community of care and be a community of care for people who are in times of distress and need. And so Russ McLeod leads our deacons, a group of about eight to ten people, and Russ has done such a great job. If you, if you are in need of just support, if you know of someone who could use some support, you can scan that QR code. You can go to our website, elmhurst.newlife.nyc, and, um, and we'd love to serve you as best as we possibly can. We just don't want to be a crowd of people that gathers together on Sundays, and then your lives are not intersecting with others and being served by others. We want to be a community, a family that's on mission together. Amen? So take note of just that uh, offering that we have to serve our local congregation. We are uh, beginning a new series today for six weeks throughout the season of Lent. For many years, New Life Fellowship Church has uh, really organized our preaching alongside the church calendar. Not for the entirety of the year, but for major portions of it. Because the church calendar has so much to offer to us as it relates to 
paying attention to particular themes of the spiritual life and what it means to be followers of Jesus. And so, for example, the season of Advent is a time of waiting. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of anticipating the coming of God in Christ. And so we learn about themes of waiting and patience and things along those lines. The season of Easter. Easter is not just a one-day thing in the church. It's a season in the life of our church where we focus on the resurrection, cultivation of joy. Jesus is alive. This is time for celebration and feasting and rejoicing. And so the church calendar helps us to pay attention to something like that. I think about Pentecost. Pentecost is not just one day. It's a season in the life of our church that recognizes that the Holy Spirit has come and we can live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and receive what the Holy Spirit longs to pour out on us. And we pay attention to that in our church. This season of Lent, a season of 40 days, is doing the same, where the themes of Lent are themes of repentance and fasting and confession. It's an opportunity for us to pay particular attention to these things. It's not that we only repent and fast and confess during the season of Lent. Say amen, somebody. Some of you are just like, ooh, I can't wait till this season is over so I don't have to repent and confess and fast anymore. That's not how it works, all right? But we pay particular attention to these themes, and that's what we're doing over the next uh, 40 uh, days, six weeks, as we focus on repentance, but in the spirit of focusing on God's character. This series is entitled, What is God Like? And we're gonna be focusing on two verses, maybe three, for six weeks. That's how much power is found in these verses. In Exodus 34, we find God's self-disclosure. What is God like? God tells us what God is like. And over the next couple of weeks, six weeks, we're going to focus on these characteristics of who God is. Exodus chapter 34 beginning in verse number five, uh, hear the word of the Lord. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses, there and proclaimed the Lord by name. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the compassionate, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This would be a really good place to stop the Bible reading at this point because that's really good news, isn't it? Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. For six weeks, we're gonna pay attention to these things. But there's a portion right after this that's connected to verse seven that I must read and I must preach about, all right? Verse seven, look what it says here. Next slide, it says, by no means he leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Some of you are like, you should have just stopped at that first slide, Pastor Rich. Why why do we have to go there? Why do we have to go there? We have to go here so that we can really understand that previous slide. And so God's going to help us to understand the various facets of God's character and what it means for us to be in relationship with this God and in relationship with the world around us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your holy word, for holy scripture. And uh, we ask that we would have grace to come under the authority of Holy Scripture. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive all you have for us this day on this first Sunday in the season of Lent. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. I came across a survey that was done by Baylor University about America's ideas about God. This survey was essentially trying to get at the ways that Americans think about God, the concepts that people have in their minds about God. And what Baylor University noted was that 95% of Americans believe in the existence of God, but that does not mean much in terms of how aligned people are as it relates to how they view God, the particular characteristics about God. And so Baylor University had this survey, and what they discovered was that there's four particular ways that people see God, four particular ways that people see God. And I would venture to say that this goes beyond just America. I think this goes globally, but this was a, a survey that really emphasized four characteristics about God. The first characteristics that Americans have about God is that God is the distant God, that God is distant. That Americans believe and people around the world believe that there is a God, but that God is so distant. That God maybe created the world, but that God really doesn't interfere with the world. Doesn't really get into the day-to-day -day realities of the world, and lots of people believe in the distant God. The second view of this survey was that there is the critical God, the critical God. That this God is really about trying to just catch us in sin. That this God just wakes up in the morning just to beat us up over the head whenever we get something wrong. I came across a cartoon clip that really showed this here where you see God on his computer. God on his computer. And, and this is the image of God that we have, the critical God. Someone's just walking down the street and God is ready to press that button and that piano is going to fall right on that guy's head. That's how many people view God. You can't find a parking spot after 30 minutes of circling. It's like, what did I do? How have I seen? sinned, your first impulse is to believe in a critical God. The third kind of concept that people have of God is that God is the authoritative God. And by that, what Americans believe is that God really cares about rules, but not relationship. It's really about doing what God says and paying attention to what God says. Just be on your best behavior. Do what God says, but there's no real relationship behind it. We believe in the authoritative God who just is over us and tells us what to do. The fourth type is the benevolent God, the benevolent God, which seems on the surface pretty good. God is good. God is compassionate. But here's the problem with this particular view of benevolence. It's not reflected in the biblical characteristic of God. It's the way that we project onto God the God that we want. And so God becomes a teddy bear in the sky. That God really could care less about sin and evil and wickedness. God is, just, God is just there to give you a big hug. And that's all there is to this benevolent God. And here's a question. Out of these four, and maybe there's something else, the question is, what is your concept of God? And how do you know? You know when trouble comes your way, what you really believe. When pushback comes your way, when, when there are challenges in your life, really what's at our deepest center, the deepest point of, us, of our subconscious, that's what typically comes to the surface. And some of you have believed in a distant God, in the critical God, the authoritative God, the benevolent God, and there's implications for believing in this kind of God. For some of you, you believed in a critical God, which means that your life is marked by guilt and shame. That all you see are all the ways that you have not measured up. 
All you see are all the sins, all the struggles, all the addictions, and you believe that God is looking at you, wagging his finger at you. You don't measure up, and you come into this church, and you come into this uh, online gathering with shame and with guilt. That is your reality. For some of us, we believe in the distant God, and what happens when you believe in the distant God is you are spiritually lonely, you live with great fear because God is not going to intervene on your behalf. God is way up there. God could care less about you. The authoritative God, for some of us, we just believe that God cares about the rules and regulations. And so what happens is our lives are marked by legalism. We're trying to earn the favor of God on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, the script of religion is, is essentially this. I obey, therefore I am loved. I obey God, therefore I am loved. That's the script of, of religion. The gospel flips that script and essentially says you are loved, therefore you are called to obey. Are you with me? But lots of people focus on I must obey, I must obey, I must obey, and then God will love me. And many of us live in that way. And for some of us who carry this idea of this benevolent God, God is so kind, God is so nice, God really doesn't care much about sin. And consequently what happens is this. We don't live lives of repentance. We don't live lives of confession. We don't live lives taking seriously the ways that we have not measured up. We don't take seriously the ways that we need forgiveness. We don't take seriously the ways that we, our lives need mercy and God's grace. The question is, where are you on the spectrum? As we look at Exodus 34, what we begin to see is that the character of God is revealed by God, not created by us. We can project our ideas upon God all we want, but the scriptures reveal to us the character of God. The character of God is not something we create, it's something God reveals. And in Exodus 34, we see God revealing the nature of his character. And so in Exodus 34, what we find are some really important revelations of who God is. And in order to truly appreciate verses 5 through verses 7, it's really helpful to, get a, to step back and look at really what's happening in this passage so that we can have a greater appreciation for what we just read a few moments ago. The book of Exodus, I love the book of Exodus because it speaks about the God who intervenes on our behalf. The God who intervenes on your behalf. The people of God find themselves as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. You know this, yes, whether you read it or watched The Prince of Egypt, you know the story. The people of God are enslaved for 400 years. For 400 years, they had one identity, slave. For 400 years, they experienced one thing, pain. They did not express to the world what was their inheritance. What was their inheritance? When God called Abraham, he called his people to be set apart for the blessing of the world. God said, I'm setting you apart so that you can bless the world, but here they are as slaves. And so they're not living out their calling that God has for them. And so they cry out to God. And in this painful reality, God intervenes. And can I just take a moment to, to, to praise the God that intervenes on our behalf? 
Listen, I don't know how God intervenes. I don't know when God intervenes. For some of you, you've been waiting for some time. I can't tell you God's calendar. I don't know God's timetable. But the Bible over and over reminds us that there is a God who intervenes in history, a God who intervenes in your life. It might not be when you want it, amen, but God will intervene. And so he intervenes on behalf of the people of God. He calls this guy named Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to partner with you to set my people free. And so he's trying to set them free, but he's not just trying to set them free from something. He's trying to set them free for something. He's not just trying to set them free from Egypt. He's trying to set them free for a purpose. And I want to tell you, God did not rescue you in Jesus Christ just to get you out of something, but to call you into something. God did not just rescue you in Jesus Christ to get you out of sin, but to put you in a new story. God did not just rescue you in Jesus Christ to get you out of a particular state of emotional health and such, but to put you into something else, to let you know that you have a purpose in this world, to let you know that his hand is upon you, to let you know that he has anointed you and he is sending you to be set apart, amen, for the sake of blessing around the world. And so God calls them out of darkness into marvelous light. But here's the problem of the Bible, and here's the problem in the book of Exodus. The problem we find over and over again was that it was easier for God to get the people of God out of Pharaoh's grip than it was to get Pharaoh's grip out of the people of God. Come on, somebody. It's very, it was easy. God said, you know what? I'm going to split the Red Sea. They're going to get through. They are free. It was easier for God to get Pharaoh's grip off his people or to get them out of Pharaoh's grip than to get Pharaoh's grip off his people. The reality is for 40 days, for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness with the residue of Pharaoh's grip on them. And God now reminds them, I just didn't rescue you from that place to just put you in a new land, I have rescued you to form you into a particular kind of people, into a particular kind of person. And so the people of God escape, they're in the wilderness, and now God is trying to tell them what free people look like, and so he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, look at the order, they are already saved, and now they receive the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments never saved the people of God. They show what free people look like. They show what saved people look like. And so God says, I I'm going to give you a new set of commands to show the world what free people look like. You shall not have any other God before me. You shall not make any graven images. Commandment number three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Commandment number four, you shall remember the Sabbath. Commandment number five, you shall honor your father and mother. Commandment number six, you shall not commit murder. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not, all the rest here. This is what a new people look like. God says, I'm setting you apart. We're going to have a covenant now. I will do this for you, and you respond in this way towards me. The people of God say, amen. And so God says, okay, Moses, go up to a mountain because we're going to etch these commands in stone. And so Moses goes up to the mountain. He brings two tablets with him, stone tablets, not iPads. He's thinking two tablets with him, and he goes up to the mountain. And as he goes up to the mountain, it's taking a while for Moses to come back down. 
And so the people of God are probably wondering, what happened to Moses? He was up in age. Did he fall? Is he okay? Did his cell phone run out of battery? Did he lose Wi-Fi? What, what happened? What, what happened to Moses? And so in their anxiety, they start doing something. As God is writing the commands with God's finger etched in stone, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make any graven images. As God is writing this stuff on the tablets, the people of God at the bottom of the mountain are starting to create an idol. They're so anxious that there's not a God to protect them that they start making a God in their own strength. And so Aaron says, Aaron is Moses' brother. The people of God say, we need a God. We need someone who's going to help us. Aaron says, all right, uh, give me all your gold. Give me your gold chain. Give me your gold ring. Give me your gold teeth. Whatever you have, we are going to make a God out of this. And so as Moses is receiving revelation, Aaron is making a God. It's actually one of the funniest stories in the Bible because when Moses comes down, he goes, Aaron, what happened? How could you do this, brother? What happened? And he said, I don't know what happened. The people just gave me all their gold, and poof, uh, uh, this idol came out. I don't know what happened. The Bible says he was actually working it. He was, it was like arts and craft day for him. He was working on this thing. Moses is on the mountain. God is giving him the Ten Commandments. God knows what's going on. God gets mad. God gets angry. Moses comes down, sees the idolatry, and smashes the tablets. And then God and Moses have a conversation. And the conversation was essentially about whose people they are. God says, these are your people. Moses says, no, these are your people. <laughs> and they start debating whose people. Have you ever done that as a parent? It's like, that's your son. No, that's your son. That's your daughter. No, that's your daughter. They start debating whose who's people. And so God says, you know what? Two seconds after we made this covenant, they're already breaking it. I'm out of here. And Moses says, how can you leave us? What, if your presence doesn't come with us, what's going to happen to us? And so Moses begins to intercede for the people of God. He shows us what Jesus Christ actually does. He starts interceding for the people of God, and then God says to Moses, all right, let's create these commands again. So he brings up stone again, and in the process of receiving the new Ten Commandments here, again, for the second time, he begins to say certain things to Moses, that passage that I just read. He lets him know who he is, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. And then he says something that I just read, and I want to focus on that first because you can't understand the previous verses unless you understand what we're saying here. God tells Moses, by no means do I leave the guilty unpunished. I respond to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. What we find here is the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Now, most people don't want to hear about this unless God is judging people you don't like. Amen. <laughs> it's like, I don't know about the judgment of God, but Lord, if you could do something about that person, I, I, I'm all right. And so this topic of judgment is pretty heavy. How do we understand it? I want to offer just a couple of reflections on judgment, and then I'm going to 
give a sneak preview of where we're going for the rest of the series, but it's important for me to say a few things about the judgment of God. The first thing I want to say about the judgment of God is that God's judgment is not God's preferred course of action. It's not that God wakes up every morning and says, I can't wait to judge these people. I can't wait to make their lives miserable. God's judgment is not God's preferred course of action. God longs that all would come to repentance. That's what the book of Peter says. He, he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. God's judgment is not God's preferred action, his course of action. Some of you believe in that critical God, and you believe that that critical God really lives to punish, exists to make your life miserable, but the first thing is that God's judgment is not God's preferred course of action. The second important thing to note is that God's judgment is tied to God's justice, and God's justice is tied to God's love. I don't want to serve a God who doesn't take sin and evil and injustice seriously. As a matter of fact, Elie Vassell, the, the, the novelist, Nobel Peace writer, he said the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference, like I could care less. And when you look at evil and wickedness and injustice in the world, I don't want to serve a God who could care less about wickedness and injustice and evil in the world. God is not indifferent to injustice. As a matter of fact, every time you read about a human being who's being trafficked in this world, it makes God angry. Every time you hear about a husband abusing his wife, it makes God angry. Every time you read about one nation oppressing another, it makes God angry. Every time we demonize another person because of their political party, because of their sexual orientation, because of their religion, it makes God angry. Every time we succumb to idolatry or injustice. If you want to know what gets God mad in the Bible, idolatry and injustice. God is not indifferent to these things. God cares profoundly about these things. That's the second thing you need to know about God's judgment. It reveals his love. What is justice? As one person said, justice is what love looks like in public. It's God's justice. It's his judgment. But the third thing I need you to know about God's judgment is that God's judgment is revealed in the consequences of our sin. I remember one professor saying to me some many years ago that God has set it up so that the consequences of our sin is how we experience judgment. Listen to this for a second. Many people have an idea of their mind of God that you sin, you mess up, you fall, you fall into a bad pattern, you, you hurt someone, and now you, you receive the consequences of your sin. And then while you're down, God sees you, and then God kicks you while you're down, and then pronounces even more judgment on you. Even though you are already crushed by your sins, God now kicks you while you are down. But what we're seeing, I think, in this passage is that it is the consequences of our sin that already form judgment. As a matter of fact, that passage that many of us find problematic, the word punish, God says, I will punish the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Many of us go, how is that fair? Why would God judge my grandchild for something I did? Why should my great-grandchildren 
experience severe judgment for something that happened a hundred years ago. That doesn't seem fair. And when I read that passage, I came across an Old Testament theologian, a guy by the name of Monfort Brock, who said that that word in Hebrew, punish, could better be rendered consequences, which reads something like this here, that children often experience the consequences of the sins of their fathers, sins of their parents, sins of their mothers. You know this to be true. Your grandparents... Some of your grandparents sinned in such a way that set your family in a particular trajectory. Because of the sin of your parents, the sin of my parents, my own sins, my own sins, your own sins, we are setting trajectories for our children and children's children. And this is what I, I, I wish God would forgive and then say, you're forgiven and all the consequences of your sin you know what, that's done as well. Wouldn't that be nice? But here's the reality. Our sins often lead to significant consequences. But I want you to see something profound. I want you to see God's math here. Because the consequences of the sins go to third and fourth generations. But the blessing of the Lord extends to thousands. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You hear what Three to four generations, God is like, my, my anger, my anger, my, the consequence of my sin, yet it'll extend here, but my blessing, my blessing, my blessing extends far beyond three and four generations. My blessings go down thousands of generations. My blessings extend and extend and extend. And so in light of this, what do we realize, friends? We realize that God's love runs deeper than our sin. God's love goes greater than our sin. That yes, in truth, we do have to deal with the consequences of our mistakes and the consequences of our sins. And at the same time, God's love runs deeper than our sin. Which reminds me of an important biblical framing, friends. It's very easy to believe that the Old Testament, we find a God of anger, and in the New Testament, we find a God of compassion. And the Old Testament is like, oh, God is like lots of judgment, and in the New Testament, there's lots of grace. But I want to tell you, there's lots of grace in the Old Testament, and there's lots of judgment in the New Testament. When you read the book of Acts, have you read the book of Acts? There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They came to church one day. They heard that there was, the church was giving generously. There was a Christmas offering. They said, oh, and everyone was giving generously. And then they lied about what they gave so that they could look a certain way. This is the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira go to church at, with, with her Gucci bag. She comes to church, and she's feeling really good about herself. He's feeling really good about himself with his outfit and everything like that. And Peter gets a revelation from the Holy Spirit that they have lied to the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, New Testament, after Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, okay, this is not an Old Testament story, Peter says, how could you lie to the Holy Spirit? And in that moment, they die. They're taken out of the service and they keep worshiping. They keep worshiping. And then the Bible says the people were filled with great fear. You think the people are filled with great fear. <laughs> in the Old Testament, there's lots of grace. And in the New Testament, there's the reality of judgment. And here we find in the Old Testament beautiful words about God's grace. And this is the challenge, isn't it, to hold this intention with each other. 
It's very sloppy theology to just hold on to grace. And it's very sloppy theology just to hold on to judgment. As a matter of fact, we look to Jesus Christ, who the Bible says in the book of John, he was full of grace and truth. He was not just full of truth to the, uh, to the exclusion of grace. And he was not full of grace to the exclusion of truth. Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. And so what I want to do is give a summary of where we're going because over the next five weeks, we're going to focus on one particular passage, one particular word in this passage here. It says in verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and there proclaimed the Lord by name. I just love this. Let me stop here for a second. It says the Lord descended, the Lord descended. What is religion? Religion is us trying to get to God. The gospel is God comes down to us. God is always descending to us. God is always moving towards us. The Lord descended. And then he begins to offer self-disclosure. Who am I? God says, the Lord, the Lord, number one, the compassionate one. The compassionate one. God has compassion for you. And if there's anything this world needs, it's compassion. Is there anything this 2024 needs? It's compassion. Our world is not marked by compassion. Our world is marked by violence. And here we find God saying his first word, compassionate. I love in the New Testament, one of your, one of your favorite stories, one of my favorite stories, in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus telling a story about compassion. You know the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son is that two sons, the younger son tells his dad, Dad, I need my inheritance, my money that you owe me as part of our culture. And so when he asks for his inheritance, it's his way of telling his dad, I need you to drop dead. Why? Because people usually get their inheritance when their parents die. Him asking for his inheritance while his father is alive, saying, drop dead, dad, I want my stuff right now. In grace, the father gives him his portion of the inheritance. The son takes his inheritance to Las Vegas. He starts spending his money on all kinds of crazy stuff, gambling his life away, doing whatever he wants, and then runs out of money. It so happens there's a famine in the land. He doesn't have any money. He's eating now the stuff that the pigs eat, which was a violation of Jewish religion and culture. This guy is out. He's out. He's outside of love, it seems. And then he realizes, maybe I can go back home. Maybe dad will accept me. Maybe dad will treat me like one of his servants. Maybe I can get a part-time job. Maybe I can live on the property, but far from my father's house. And so he starts walking home. And I love what it says here. While he was still a long way off. Do you hear that? The father saw him and was filled with compassion. While he was still a long way off. Some of you, you feel a long way off. Some of you, you have taken matters into your own hands. You have said, my kingdom come, my will be done, and you have been a long way off. But praise God that God's compassion extends to people who are a long way off. The father doesn't wait for his son to come to his feet. He says, beg for mercy, beg for forgiveness, clean yourself up, and then I'll offer you compassion. No, while the sun is far off in the distance, probably smelling like all kinds of filth, 
the father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, gives him a robe, gives him a bath, offers compassion to him. This is the God that's in relationship with you. This is the God that Exodus reveals. This is the God that Jesus Christ reveals, filled with compassion. Then he says, I'm not just a compassionate God, I'm gracious to you. I'm gracious to you. What is grace? Grace, very simply, is, go to the next slide for me. Grace is unmerited goodness shown to us who are undeserving. In other words, God doesn't wait until we are good before God extends goodness to us. Praise God. God doesn't wait. God's grace is unmerited. You can't earn it. Whatever you, whenever you earn something, it's no longer grace. You cannot earn the grace of God. It's given to you freely. And it is given, God is not good because you've been good. God is good to you because God is good. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says he makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. His grace is for all. It's unmerited shown to us who are undeserving. And those who recognize the degree to which we need grace are those who rejoice when we receive it. I've been in lots of places where people do not understand the extent of how much grace they need. And so when the good, the good news of grace comes, they're just like, that's pretty nice. But when you know the ways you've missed the mark, when you know the ways that you've been caught up in sin, when you know the ways that you have said, my kingdom come, my will be done, when the message of grace comes to you, you rejoice because you realize you have not measured up. You realize you missed the mark. You realize your life is inconsistent. Therefore, God's grace is for you. And there's reason to rejoice. God says, I'm compassionate. He says, I'm gracious. He says, thirdly, I'm slow to anger. Praise the Lord. Some of us grew up in homes where people were quick to be angry. And some of you, you have been quick to be angry. But aren't you glad that God is slow to anger? God's love is long-suffering, patient. And God is slow to anger with you and slow to anger with me. Anger for God is not a first response but a last resort. God's anger is slow. Then he says, I am, my life is marked by loyal love. Loyal love. That word loyal love, uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, the, the word is chesed, chesed. It, it only works when you pronounce it, when you spit on someone. That's, that's our, we're not going to do it together. It's a public health issue. Uh, but, but chesed. It's one of the words that comes up most in the Old Testament because of how beautiful that word is. As one person said, what is chesed? Chesed is the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. That's for you, that's chesed. And God says about himself, my life is marked by loyal love. Loyal to what? Loyal to the covenant loyal to my side of things. And then God knows something about you and knows something about me. While God is loyal to his covenant, God knows that we often aren't. 
So that last word is he says, I am faithful. Faithfulness. And I just want to praise God for his faithfulness. I want to praise God for all the ways that God has been faithful to me and faithful to you and faithful to us. You know, uh, every uh, week or so, I take out one of my journals. I've been journaling. I've been writing my prayers. I've been writing my fears. I've been writing my hopes. I've been writing my joys. I've been doing that for about 25 years. I have books. I have journals of my, of my, my, my struggles, my anxieties, my hopes, my dreams, my questions. And for years, I've been putting these things on paper. And what I love to do from time to time is to look at old journals of where I've been. Journals of where I've been in 2015 and 2013. And the other day, I was looking back at stuff that I wrote in 2015. The struggles that I had in 2015, which were actually similar to the struggles I have today. I thought, Lord, I'm still doing the same stuff. What's going on here? And what I would find in my journal were pain, questions, and then a couple of pages later, God's faithfulness. As I would document God's history of faithfulness. There'd be one page where, Lord, what's going to happen to this family member of mine? Five pages later, Lord, you came through. Lord, what's going to happen to the fear and anxiety that I'm sensing deep down in my soul? 20 pages later, the Lord made a way where there was no way. Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to provide for my needs? I'm writing my prayers. I'm writing my hopes. I'm writing my struggles. Lord, how are you going to provide for this need? Seven pages later, the Lord provides. And that's just not my story. That's your story. That's our story as the people of God. It doesn't mean that all my journals are filled with requests and God answering the requests, but what I've seen throughout the pages of my stack of journals is God has been faithful year in and year out, decade in and decade out, century in and century out, millennia in and millennia out. God is faithful. Amen. And God is faithful to you. God holds his part of the deal. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And so what is our response, friends? Our response is repentance. I want to invite our, prayer, our uh, worship team to come forward. Our response is repentance. Listen, the book of Romans says that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We don't repent to obtain the kindness of God. We have received the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we repent. And what we find in Exodus 34, those words describe perfectly who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that passage. He's the personification of compassion, grace, loyal love, slow to anger, that's who Jesus is for you. But there is a response from us. And here it is. God offers this to you. But God offers this to you not simply so we can receive it and go, praise God, what a gift. I receive compassion. I receive gift, uh, uh, grace. I receive God's being slow to anger. I receive God's loyal love. I receive his faithfulness. Praise God. What a sermon. It doesn't end that way. We don't get off that easy. Why? Because when God gives us something, 
is not just so that we can receive it. It's so that we would be formed by it. And so here's the question. Where do you need to embody compassion? Who have you been withholding compassion from? Some of you, you you hear that someone voted from someone else. It's like no compassion for you whatsoever. Who have you been withholding grace from? Who have you been fast to get angry with? Who have you been holding uh, withholding loyalty from in the healthiest sense of that word? We are invited today not just to receive it, but to have our lives formed by it. And so what does that mean for us? That we all have repenting to do, starting with me. Every single one of us in this room are to turn our lives to Jesus, to be formed by these qualities of God, and then offering it to the world around us. And so what is the Holy Spirit calling you to do today, to respond to today? Who comes to mind when you think about all the ways that you've withheld some of these things? What is the invitation from the Lord to you? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the complexity, the tensions that scripture puts before us. Give us grace. Give us wisdom to live into it. And Lord, as we respond, we respond in prayer, we respond in repentance, but first of all, we respond in song. We respond in singing as an expression of worship. And so as we sing about your name, who you are, your character, may you begin to do something deep down in our souls. May we receive all you want us to receive, and may we give all you want us to give. We sing to you now these words of praise about who you are, your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, let's all stand and let's sing as a response together.